0: Welcome to the Prime Effects Podcast. I'm your host, David Shillington. In this podcast, we'll be normalizing the conversation around mental health, and we'll be interviewing elite athletes, some of Australia's admired sporting stars, and finding out what strategies they use to overcome setbacks in their life, and what we can learn out of that to use in our life, and equip you with some worthwhile strategies that are proven to boost your mood, motivation, energy, all things we call mental fitness to help us feel our best and perform our best. Enjoy the show. G'day everyone, I'm here with Lockie Henderson, an AFL great, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about parts of his career, what worked for him, what not have worked so well as well. He played for a few different teams, had some great coaches, teammates, maybe some not so great ones, who knows. We want to talk about uh, the success of those teams, what contributed to it. And what maybe advice you give to young players coming through the system as well. So welcome, Lockie. Great to have you on the podcast. You're living on the Gold Coast these days. Moved up from Victoria a little while back. Are you still playing local footy?
1: I played this year. I played for the uh, Labrador Tigers, which was good fun. So local footy had a run around. But I think I'm probably done now.
0: Maybe. Probably done. You were just showing me your finger before. You recently had surgery.
1: Yeah, so I had that. I did that back in 2016 and it's just been hanging on since then, but it was time to get it done. So we we straightened it up and there's a screw in it and we got the uh, the ligament from my wrist. So it's all uh, it's all straight again and it's working fine, which is good.
0: Wow. Incredible what they can do. Ligament from your wrist. That's incredible.
1: That's actually the bit that hurts the most because I still can't do push-ups properly, but yes, oh, wow. it is incredible. It was, yeah, it was sideways. So it's it's relatively, it's still a bit fat, but it's relatively straight now.
0: It's definitely still fat. Uh, Anyone uh, <laughs> listening online and not watching, it's definitely still fat. Yes, I definitely that resonates with me. The fingers, being an old rugby league player myself, most of them are crooked from old breaks or you know, bad dislocations or even just jarring your finger continuously. That scar tissue builds up, and they're you know triple the size of
1: what they're supposed to be. Big time. So yeah, it's fixed now.
0: Nice. Well, we might talk about injuries a bit later because I know you suffered quite a few injuries in your career, as did I. So we might talk about what it's like to experience those injuries and probably more excitingly or importantly, what it's like to come back from those. But first of all, we mentioned you're in the Gold Coast. Now, a while back, I caught up with another old AFL guy, Corey McKernan, and he'd moved up from Melbourne, living on the Sunshine Coast. Now, my brother, Johnny, he moved from the Gold Coast down to Melbourne. And he raves about Melbourne. He's like, oh Melbourne this, Melbourne that. It's the great city, greatest city ever. So I said to Corey, now all these Melburnians carry on about how good a city it is, but you're living on the coast. Is it better than living in Melbourne? And he goes, Oh shit yeah, Shiloh, for sure. It's way better. And I call my mates down in Melbourne all the time and tell them that. I tell them the sun's out. There's water here. I'm going on the beach in winter. You guys don't know what you're missing out on. Are you having that same experience, Lockie?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I've got a few mates that love Melbourne. I lived in Melbourne for six years when I played for Carlton. Couldn't wait to get out of there. Mainly because I'm more not a city person. So, I know I'm on the Gold Coast now and it's, I don't know, it's a city, but it doesn't feel like one. But the, having the beach so close, and the nice warm weather is uh, fantastic.
0: It certainly is. I'm a very proud Queensland. I love living in the state. Yeah, growing up, were other sports an option for you? Because I know for myself, my mum and dad got me into all sports. And I started playing soccer when I was a four-year-old. Don't tell the rugby league community that. Then I actually switched to AFL and played for Maine Tigers here in Brisbane when I was five. And then followed my older brothers to rugby league as a six-year-old. But definitely played those other sports throughout my teen years. Played um, rugby union a lot, bit of cricket, swimming, and played a bit of AFL. But unfortunately, I was too clumsy, terrible hand-eye coordination, too slow to c- continue to play AFL, and uh, kept getting penalised for tackling too aggressively. So, chose rugby league as a career. What about yourself? What other sports were you interested in?
1: Yeah, rugby league definitely wasn't anything. Didn't even know what it was down in Victoria, <laughs> so I didn't go near that. And I wasn't. I don't really have the build for that either. But I played. I played a lot of sports as well. I was a golfer, mad golfer, from when I was very, very young and then lived lived on uh, right near the golf course. So I'm a mad keen golfer, played tennis and cricket as well. So sort of the four sports I played mainly growing up. Everyone thinks I could play basketball, but I'm horrible at it just because I'm <laughs> tall. But yeah, golf sort of tennis and, and uh, for you were the main ones and then cricket in there a little bit as well.
0: Cool. Plenty of great golf courses on the Gold Coast. Have the injuries held you back or have you been able to explore them a bit?
1: Yeah, I haven't explored them as much as I'd like to. I, I love going up to Brookwater. And I played the Glades a few times here as well. And I'm living right near the Southport Golf Club. So I should be out there a bit more than what I am. The finger helped me out, but that's I can't really claim that for more than the last six weeks. So yeah, I've got to get out a little bit more. But life, when you uh, transition out of playing professional footy, gets a little bit crazy. So just trying absolutely. to find my feet still.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Has playing local AFL helped transition between that professional career and, and the real world, so to speak?
1: I'd say No. But more just because it's it is hard i was ready for it i couldn't wait to transition out i was excited about it but it's interesting when you do it for any amount of time but i did it for 14 years it's interesting to wake up most mornings and not have a set guideline already for you so that's been the hardest part and then trying to feel like okay well what am i actually going to do today i've got to actually do it myself so that's been the hardest probably the hardest part transitioning out and one that's taken me a good 12 months to sort of get my head around and only really starting to find my feet in that regards now.
0: That is one thing you mentioned there. Um, doing things for yourself—that was something I noticed was a big thing when I left the NRL and entered the real world. Is you finish school, move down into the NRL system, or I'll say bubble potentially, probably more accurate, and everything gets done for you. And I remember I strained my quad in like the third week of preseason, my first preseason, and the trainer drove me to the physio. The physio worked within like a more bigger public practice, and we walked straight past reception, didn't have to make a booking, jumped straight on the table, got treated, walked out, didn't have to sign anything, pay any forms, bills, or anything like that, and got on with my day. Yeah, yep. And that's how like you rolled every day. And if you had to see the doctor, you didn't bother making an appointment. You walked straight in, see them, get whatever you need, walk out, don't sign anything, don't pay for anything, <laughs> like that. Yep. And actually, you know, speaking candidly about myself, I remember when I retired and- I had a, a three-year-old daughter by then, and she had an ear infection. And my wife um, said, oh, I've got to work today, but Eve really needs to go to the doctor. Can you take her down there? I said, yep, sure. Can you make the appointment for me? <laughs> she helped yep. So she made the appointment. I took Eve down, and and the doctor saw her ear and wrote, wrote a script and so on. I walked out to uh, the reception, and, and I walked up to the reception and said, all right, well, um, all done there. Thank you. And she goes, yep, no worries and I just pulled out my wallet and I said oh how much will that be and she goes oh that's all bulk build today and I went "Yeah, oh, cool yep no worries and pulled out my card and went to pay and she goes oh so there's um nothing to pay and I went oh right I've seen the words bulk building before on signs never understood what it meant never needed to <laughs> There it is. <laughs> when I was in school, mum paid for me. She did it all. And then when I was in footy, the Roosters did it all for me or whoever it was. So there's some realities like that for retiring players.
1: And it sounds so silly to a lot of people, but you, I felt like I was pretty self-sufficient as a footballer, especially as I got older. I felt like I did a lot of things for myself and still think I did. But it's just those little things that you forget about that take up little bits of time in your day that you're like, oh, okay, I've got to do that for myself now and like set up your own GMHBA or things like that like it's it's interesting so yeah it's, it's been an interesting transition to say the least.
0: Absolutely so let's talk about some of those clubs you and I both played for three different clubs I moved down to Sydney to play for the Roosters the Chooks after school I was there for seven years moved on to the Raiders for seven years and finished up at the Gold Coast Titans all wildly different clubs Roosters very very high profile they expect success demand success in that if you're not achieving, like you get shown on the door, and that's their strategy, and that's fine, that's good, and that works for them. But then I say that for a reason in that when I went to Canberra, I guess they didn't expect success as much. And they certainly weren't high profile. They're much more sort of easygoing club where they have a lot of country boys that come in and very, very good culture from that respect, mateship wise. But then I went moved to the Titans and the Titans were going through a really interesting phase at that time where their owner had become bankrupt and they became controlled by the NRL had a couple of off-field controversies, these cocaine scandals where they got kicked out of the facilities there, training at the Southport School. It wasn't, you know, not appropriate for them to train there anymore because of the scandals. And they moved into training at the Burley Bears, which was, I'd say, uh, subpar facilities for an NRL team. <laughs> and because of all their scandals and, you know, poor performances, they turned over half the roster every year for the last couple of years. And... There wasn't like a core nucleus of players that drove culture and standards or anything like that, and they were really trying to rebuild. So, yeah, look, all wildly different clubs at different phases with different cultures. I'd like to hear from you. You played for the Lions, played predominantly probably for um, Carlton as well and, and finished up with Geelong. What were some of those differences with club culture, your experiences and enjoyment, I guess, of playing there?
1: Very similar, except for your last club, the Gold Coast Titans, Two like very, very different clubs, especially Carlton and Geelong, the way they are. I can't speak about Brisbane too much. Being a 17-year-old walking in for two years, you're a young kid. You think everything's great. Everything's fantastic. So I don't like to speak about that besides the fact that it was an, when I was there, it was an amazing club. We had amazing people around us, had a really good core group of, of senior players in, in Jonathan Brown, Simon Black, Luke Power, Nigel Lappin. Been the main four. There's a few more, of course. So yeah, I I was very lucky to walk into that club and to have the people I had around me. And then Carlton was interesting. We had probably three, two, three good years and then we had two, three pretty tough years. My 2014, 2015 years was very hard. 2014 for injury reasons, 2015 was when I left. I didn't handle myself very well. 2015, the club didn't handle it very well, in my opinion. And it was just a tough year. It was a really, really tough year. And then The Carlin Footy Club is a bit like the Roosters, high profile, lots of media attention, lots of pressure. The pressure, unfortunately, was coming from the top down. And in any sort of business, if there's a lot of pressure coming from the top down, it it just leaks into everything and everyone in the football department. And that created a lot of issues and issues that I probably at the time knew too much about because I was... Lot very friendly with a few of the staff members, and and I, and I just knew what was going on, which probably didn't help me at all. And then Geelong, it's just a, its culture is built on everything that is right about a football club. It is an incredible football club. It's why since two thousand and seven, it's been able to do what it's done. And then finally, they got to win the premiership this year, which yep. was awesome to see because we've been so close for the six years that I was there. We played in four prelims and a, and a grand final, which is just no club does that so everyone was laughing at us cuz we couldn't win it and we had such a bad finals record but i'd take losing four prelims and a grand final over not playing finals at all any day of the week it's heartbreaking mm. it's it's hard to get through but i'd rather be there than finishing in august and coming back at the start of november so and and they're built it's and i'd say from the top down from board level ceo coaches all the way down through the Geelong footy club they're there for the right reasons. It's a big country club. They're um, smart in the way they do things. They're smart in the way they market. They don't make it anything about singular people or singular things. It's all about the team. And they've just got such a good, strong culture with the people they've got. And they've had it for years. It started with the, the, the older guys back in 2007 with the Matthew Scarletts and Corey Enrights. Plenty more, but they're the two I spent a lot of time with over the last six years. And It goes into Joel Selwood who just left and now it's with Tom Hawkins and Paddy and Tommy Stewart and and those sort of guys and Blitzy. So they just bring in the right people. They breed the right people and they don't get people in there that are going to hurt their culture. They would rather go someone that might be deemed less talented but coming in with the right attitude and the right culture in themselves to make their yep. culture as a team and, and an organization better. Because in the end, it's a big business. And if you've got the business yep. Yep. Humming, at the, humming at the top with the board, it'll just flow all the way through. It's all about winning games of footy, but they're all intertwined, especially in a footy club.
0: Mm, absolutely. And throughout this talk, we'll, we'll talk about some of those I guess lessons or learnings from sport and how that translates into the workplace. But already like I'm hearing you talk about, you know, constructing teams, recruiting the right people and and I know in my business and other businesses I've worked in, that's that's been so much the key to success is having the right people in there. And I I've, I've seen on LinkedIn a million times someone posts this quote along the lines of recruit character, develop talent and develop skills so recruiting the right person might not necessarily be perfect for the job skill wise yet but develop those skills knowing you've got the right person and I reckon that's wholeheartedly how you need to do it so you mentioned I guess a few of those different cultures throughout you know some of those tough years you guys had whether you lost a game or you you bombed out the finals or whatever it might be you had some controversy maybe throughout the season with the team what did some of the teams do well, or individuals do well, to either you know, get you back on track, to pick yourselves up, or maybe what could they have done better that they should have done back then?
1: I think for teams, it's a really simple answer, and the, the stark difference that I I found between Carlton and Geelong, and I'll, I'll inference this with saying I don't want to, I'm not bashing Carlton here by any any respect it's just going to might sound that way a little bit because i have so much respect for the way geelong do it um and can't have changed this was 10 years ago now so the main thing is no individualizing especially in a team sport so even when things went bad even when someone stuffed up um a couple of people cost us a game or cost us a game because no one can really cost you a game of of footy it might just seem like that right at the end Mm. um or anything that happened, it was never individual. It was never about that individual. It was never put out in the public as the individual. There's nothing individual about it. It's you're there as a whole team, and the whole team takes it. Now, behind closed doors, and I say behind closed doors, we're sometimes not even in front of the players, just in front of the leadership group and maybe a coach or two. That player, if they have stuffed up on a night out, might have got spoken to, or they came back fat for preseason, may have got spoken about, but... It was never about bashing them or bringing them down or anything like that. It was all about making sure that what you individually were good at was brought up and your weaknesses you work on. But if anything ever goes wrong, it was always a team problem. It was never, ever an individual problem. And that was the main difference I saw between a really good club and a not so good club was that it was never about an individual, good, bad, or indifferent.
0: That's really good insight. And yeah, the teams I've played in, they have similar values. Yeah, we the successful ones. All right. Not not to be too obvious there, but there was teams I played in when there was a, a real separation between, say, senior players and junior players. And I know that was the case at the Roosters in my early days because they had a, a wonderful team, 0-4. But then all those players like the Brad Fittlers and Luke Rickardsons, they retired and or some players moved on. It was a changing of the guard twenty oh five when I debuted. And for those next couple of years, it was a tough slog to, you know, blood these new players, get them experience. Um, a couple of senior players were still around, like the Craig Fitzgibbons and so on. And inevitably, there became this big divide of a, maybe an us 1st them mentality. The senior guys would be like, "Well, we're pulling our weight. If only the young guys would, you know, step up as well." And the young guys would be like, "Man, we're only young. Show us the way. <laughs> you know, we want to learn. Give us a chance." And when we were able to. I know Brad Fittler took over as coach for a while in uh, halfway through 2007, and I had him in 2008 there as well, and we had some really good success in 2008, went into the finals and so on, finished fourth overall in the year, so fairly successful without achieving the ultimate goal. And a couple of things he did really well was drive individual accountability and responsibility and knowing your role you've got to play and how that contributes to overall team success, but then also driving the point that we're all just as important as each other in the team. The hooker, the halfback, needs me to get a great run to get a quick play the ball to drive momentum for them. And I need them to give me great service, a great pass, so that I can get my best run possible. And and simply enough, it's all, you know, intertwined like that. No one's more important than the other, regardless of what you get paid. You know, what you do on the field and how you show up for each other that contributes to that team success.
1: Yeah, the individual accountability is an interesting one because it's all well and good, but the accountability can't be anywhere outside what's going on in doors so and Mm. a very simple example and one I I sort of giggle to myself all the time is at the moment all the clubs are going back to pre-season training and if you'll notice you'll never see Geelong put out anything to do with time trials who's come back early it's never about that whereas Mm. I know that who won the Gold Coast time trial I know who came second Mm. I wouldn't yep. have a clue. I don't even know half the time who's won the Geelong one and I ask the boys and they oh, no. Because it's never about that. It's the individual is yes and the individual will get talked to if he ran a 6.30 2K time trial last year and this year he runs a 6.55. Oh, he'll get talked He'll mm. get spoken to. It's not going to get swept yep. under the carpet, but no one will know about it unless yep. they need to know about it. Like mm. the captain will know about it, the leadership group will know about it, but I probably wouldn't. I didn't know half the stuff that – that went on yeah and that's the individual accountability that needs to happen it's it's individual mm. within the people that need to know and that's about it no one else needs to know about it because all that does is put more pressure on the the human being and there's enough out there these days with what social media does and just talking about social media and the media there's enough pressure out there for each individual to have to try and navigate as a 18 to 25 year old
0: yeah, fully agree. And I remember Alan Tung used to talk about that when he captained us at the Raiders. He specifically said really what you said. The boys, some of you got a great beat test. Some of you got a great squat in the gym. Some of you killed that preseason activity wherever. But now it's about performing on the field individually and as teams. All those results don't really count for anything. Yeah, it shows your hard work and, and, and some special talents, but that's all behind us now. We need to focus on winning games together. So, yeah, it's, it's a really good point. I'd like to hear about your mindset, so around injuries and setbacks in general, I guess. And as I said, people will learn from our experiences and see how that translates into their life, whether it's personally or professionally. I always view setbacks as a real opportunity to show character, to learn and to grow. So if you don't quite have the best game, have a conversation with the coach, an honest one, where you could have done things differently. That could include looking back at your week of preparation, what you ate, how your attitude was at training. Or it could be the morning of the game or it could be within the game, some of the decisions you made. And so learning how to fine-tune things is exciting. And so when you have a setback in a weird way, it's kind of a good thing. Gives you something to work on and now you can become a better player. But then also know with injuries as well, Injuries are inevitable in professional sport. Some people like Cameron Smith managed to play 400 million games and barely get injured or barely let injuries hold him back potentially. But other blokes like yourself and I, like I had 10 rounds of surgery when I played, had a couple of knee recos, a couple of shoulder recos, a couple of plates in my hands and amongst other things. And And when that happened, you sort of feel like, well, one, am I going to get back from this injury to be able to play good footy? And two, while I'm not playing for that four to six weeks or four to six months, is everyone going to get better than me? Am I going to be able to keep up and am I, is my career safe because I'm off contract or I've got one year left on my contract and there's a whole lot of you know, vulnerabilities around that. What were some of the sort of you know, motivating factors for you when you are either tired, not playing well, injured, that kept you pushing hard?
1: Yeah, injuries was probably the big one for me and I'll do the male thing here and say I've got you beaten. I'm on 13 surgeries.
0: Ah, uh, yes. Not competitive at all, but lucky. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, just doing what we do. The score is 13 to 10 people, but it's only half time. Yep.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Lucky's
0: winning.
1: Yeah, injuries is sort of my main one. I I was interesting because I was very, very single-minded and probably a little bit over the top with my what professionalism, which is a positive word, but sort of my early sort of half of my career, probably three quarters of my career, I was a bit over the top with the way I did things. Yep,
0: double-edged sword.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. And 2018, 2019 was a real interesting because I had, I think it was the end of 17, on the end of, no, it was the end of 17, I had three knee surgeries in six months. Didn't do, a, actually with 0% of pre-season at the end of 2017 leaving into 2018. So they gave me the sheet of paper I had my last third knee surgery, in, I think March, Feb March, so just leading into the season. Played seven games at the end of 2018. Had a really sort of tough year. I was by myself for a lot. I was sort of getting to the point, and, and a little bit, I'm a, I'm a little bit singular in the way I do things. I got to the point where I was coming in because I had so much. Time. I was coming in at 6am, but I was leaving at 9 some days before the boys even got in. The boys are rolling about 9:30. Yep. I'd be. Done. I'd be going home because it was just easy to get everything done. So I just wasn't around. 2019, I came in, I had some groin trouble after my knees in the preseason, didn't do much preseason, then had plantar fasciitis through 2019, which is a, for anyone that doesn't know, it's sort of some tendons in your feet and it's very painful. It finally ripped about round seven. That got me back to, again, played about the last seven rounds and ended up playing the finals again, but I was. A waste of space, to be honest with you, in 2018 and 2019. And that led to me being delisted, which in the end was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because what they ended up saying was, "Uh, we might pick you back up, but we're delisting you now. We don't know. if, If there's a spot there and it goes your way, then we'll pick you back up. So you've got a decision to make. Do you want to retire or do you want to come back? And I sort of went away. I was overseas for most of the time. And I was like, oh, well, I might as well just say, yeah, I'll come back. If they pick me up, I'll play. If they don't, well, cool. I'm happy either the way. And that's sort of where I got to. And it ended up all falling yep. my way, and I came back and played. But in that time, I I lost. For me, personally, and I feel like the question you answered, I'm getting to the answer at some point, but the question you answered, it's different for everyone. I was too hardcore in the way I did things. So in 2008, I had trained too hard. So when I was back, I was stuffed. I'd be in the mm. heat room and the altitude room for sometimes doing sessions for like an hour and a half, but really, really hard sessions that would take me to like a, my full threshold and you'd say out of five and I'd hit five. I'd try and hit fives. That was my, my goal. I just had to hit fives every time. So I'd go yep. too far one way. Then after I got delisted, I sort of came back for what I say being the right reasons, but I came back in 2020 to literally just play VFL and help the young boys, help the VFL boys out and the fun that I had in that preseason and the start of that season was probably the funnest I've had in footy, because mm. I was playing with the twos or the reserve side at training. I was playing on Hawks the whole time. I was Scarlett will back, Maddie will back me up. I was beating Hawk pretty much most days, and it was I was enjoying it and I was just having fun with the with the VFL boys. And I I just learned to just relax a little bit. Because I was just too hyper, and for most of my career, everything had to be a certain way. Everything had to be—I can't even think of the word right now—and we'll we'll shove it in at some point. But I had to be very meticulous, and it had to be that way. If it wasn't that way, I was screwed. If I didn't have four in 2012, if I didn't have four power aids leading to a game, I was cooked. And Mm. I was was just Mm. juiced up on sugar; it wasn't good for me. So Mm. I was so meticulous, and then after 2019, I lost my ego—best thing that ever happened to me. And I came back and just enjoyed it and just relaxed and came back with a less is more approach. When I Mm. trained, I trained bloody hard, but it was less and it was way more efficient than what I was doing. And that took me 12 years to work out. So (laughs) I wish I had, I wish I had worked that out 10 years ago. For me personally, the biggest thing to, that's hard, I think is any sort of professional sports man or woman to come in is working out as a 18 to 20 year old, 22 year old, what works for you. If you work that Mm. out, what works for you, you're flying. But that's the hardest thing. It took me 12 years at a delisting and to be told, oh, no, we don't want you back. You're not good enough, which to a human being in a professional sport is a difficult thing to take at the time. But again, best thing that ever happened.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I think perfectionism, certainly the killer of joy for a lot of people. I've been through that many times, still get it from time to time but also it can be really detrimental to your actual performance and learning when to put your foot on the accelerator and then on the brake. That's a really important skill in life. Learning when to be, I guess, content, happy, give yourself a pat on the back, but not so much rest on your laurels and don't feel like you're falling behind. That's a big skill. It's something I struggle with time to time. You mentioned ego. We're only talking about this the other day. We see with different leaders or just Individuals' ego just holds people back in so many ways. Yeah, they're not very coachable, of course, so they're not very good at learning off other people, and they're not probably not very approachable either. So they're not great teammates or leaders. So, what was it changed in you that you said you lost your ego? Is that something you did deliberately, or it happened? Is it directly related to just not being that AFL star on TV?
1: It was just like being told, like, to that you're done, like, see you later, is a difficult thing. Being told you're not wanted, even when So last year I retired, but it was sort of a mutual, like, yeah, we're okay for you to go. Yeah, okay, I'm ready to go. So it was funny because when they told me last year, Andrew Mackey called me and he said, yeah, we're not going to offer you a contract. And I went, oh, because you're getting told you're not wanted. You don't need it. We don't need you anymore. Like, you're fine. You can move on. And it was funny. For about two hours, it was about 11 o'clock, about 1 o'clock, I was like, lucky if Mac had have said, here's your contract, what would you have said? And I would have said, no, I'm done. So what was that two hours? It was ego. That's all it was. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was nothing yeah. more. For two hours, I had my ego back and I was just getting told, whereas I knew the answer that I was going to give anyway. But mm. for that two hours, I was like, I was just, oh, my God, I'm done. Oh, my God, he doesn't want yeah. me. I don't know. I look at it very differently and sometimes I, I express this right. Sometimes it doesn't come out right, but ego and pride, two very different things. Ego pulls you down. Pride is something that keeps your performance high. Have pride in what you do, Have, but it's not always going to go well. It's not always going to be great. You're not always going to be perfect. And that was one thing that I, I learned really early. I worked with a sports psych my whole career by the name of Rosie Stanimirovic, and I would have retired in 2012 probably if it wasn't for her. But the first thing that we wrote in 2008, my first year, on a piece of paper, which I've still got somewhere, it's somewhere in a box. It says, I do not need to be perfect. That was the first thing I wrote and one that stuck with me since that day, but I wrote it in 2008. It didn't hit me till 2020. So it took 12 years. It took a long time for me and some would say, you're an idiot, but it's just what it took.
0: That's life. And you got there too. Some people never get there 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like what I love hearing about with sports people, anyone of course, is some of those life lessons and but particularly for you and sport, how playing in teams, testing yourself, coming back from setbacks, how that's built your character and, and who you are today. I always think of preseason training as a great way to talk about mental fitness, and which is, you know, one of the main focuses we have here at Prime Effect. And one of the easiest ways to talk about mental fitness is to couple it, I guess, with conversations around physical fitness, mental health, physical health, mental fitness, physical fitness. And I know for me, the first day of preseason training, even if you've done stacks of them, it's daunting. It's scary. You feel vulnerable and scared. Like, what, what's the trainer going to throw at me today? What sort of sick activities are you going to think up to try and test us and break us? And you're scared. You're not sure how you're going to handle it. Then fast forward about four or five weeks, you're like getting your rhythm, a few Ks on the legs, and uh, you're like, yeah, maybe I can handle this. I'm starting to feel a bit more confident. And then fast forward to, you know, maybe the 10, 12 week mark, the end of preseason, you rock up that day and you go, I'm physically fit, bring it on, do whatever you want, I can handle it. And you have that confidence about you. And I think of mental health and mental fitness in the same way, in that sometimes in life we'll be waking up not knowing what's they day going to throw at us? Do we have those skills, capabilities to handle it? Are we going to walk into work and get surprised by a boss about some new task we have to have? When this email comes through from a certain person, is that going to stress us, overwhelm us? When we have some sort of meeting with one of our stakeholders at work, do we have the confidence to handle that? But if we work on that over time, then and depending on where you're starting from and how consistent you are, over four, six, eight weeks, you start to get a bit of confidence about you that you can handle what the day throws at you. And then you'll get to a point in life when you're mentally fit and you go, well, bring on life, bring on whatever, any challenge. I have this confidence based on the work I've done to handle any of those sort of setbacks, regulate my stress properly, perform at the capacity that I want to perform at. And so I really think that, you know, coupling together those conversations around physical health, physical fitness, mental health, mental fitness is helpful for people to have that vision. Pre-season training for you specifically, I think we talk about, you know, physical health or mental health throughout that period. What were some of the crazy things your trainers came up with and how do you think it shaped you, I guess, positively as a person?
1: There's definitely one that sticks with me more than ever and talk about what you spoke about then is like you've got to do things to get confidence and you can, you can sort of get through anything once you've done them. And then also the mental fitness is when you're younger, watching other people do things and that helps you when you're younger. And so sort of the two stories I've got is I think it was my second year at Brisbane. We went to South Stradbroke Island, and we had a wrestling martial arts coach at the time, um, and he was with the Storm. You may know him, John Donoghue.
0: I've heard of him. I've never been trained by him.
1: Yeah. So, JD, legend, but as hard as they come and as yep. ruthless as they come when it comes to rules, et etc. et cetera. So, uh, for instance, I had him at Carlton, too, and a few of us were late to a, a session out. We had to drive from the club 45 minutes. We finished weights. It was not our fault. We finished weights. There was traffic. We were like 15 minutes late. He didn't care. And (laughs) we were fuming as 21-year-olds because we're like, we didn't do anything wrong. We literally, the weights coach kept us in. We were probably not going to make it anyway, plus there was traffic. Anyway, rewind back to 2000. I think it must have been 2009. We went to a South Strader, Rogue Island. First day up at 5 a.m., we had him on the beach for two hours. Now, I was a bit injured, so I didn't do the whole thing as a 9, 18-year-old, but that was probably the worst two hours I've ever had at the time, and still probably to this day. Next day, we had one of those big um, ropes that hold in big ships. So it was probably, I don't know, put a fist together, maybe two fists, something like that, but a big, thick rope. So you, you had to have everyone holding it to keep it off the ground. And we did a heap of different things with it. We did races with it. We did all this stuff. But there was one right at the end, and it was sort of like a beep test. Everyone had to line up with it above their head, and they had to run. we had to run up and down on the stand with JD watching us, and we had to hit the beeps. And if we got like 21 beeps, it was done. It took us, I think, over an hour to get it done because blokes would drop it. We'd fall mm. over we do mm. all this stuff. But one single moment came out of it was Brownie at the time, Jonathan Brown. Now, if you know Jonathan Brown, big, bulking, manly, like loud voice, captain at the time, scary human being to play footy against. Could have played, probably played rugby and, and saw it in pretty well. He fell over. We were on like the 18th run. We are right at the end. We'd nearly done it and he fell over on one of the runs and he was right next to JD, but he kept his arms above his head. He fell over, kept his arms above his head, and popped back up. J D goes, "No, nah, start again." And Brownie <laughs> lost it, but yeah. lost it not in a way that made all the young boys look. Just said, J.D., I keep my arms above my head." A moment, he said, "Bad luck, buddy. You fell over." But the learning from it was for me was he had his say. Brownie then stopped, took, went back with everyone, and did it again. He didn't over say. He said, "No, no." He, he argued for five seconds with the arms above his head. But took it on the chin and walked back and that the whole point sticks with me. But he did the right thing. He still kept his arms above the head, but he didn't argue the point. And so, in that hardest moment, with everything going on, it went was we so close, and it went so wrong, and we were spent. Like there was, I think Dan Merritt was holding up two people's sides because the young boys, couple of young boys, couldn't do it. Like literally, couldn't do it. So he was holding up two sides. I think, yeah, there was there was all sorts of stuff going on. But at that point, Brownie, in the hardest moment, being the captain, being all that, didn't let it get to him. that he was right, essentially. But J.D. goes, no, nah, no, nah, I'll test you here. Bad luck. Go through it. And then on the other point where you learn, I was always a good runner. So I could, anything like a 15-minute run we did or anything long, I was always top 10. And sort of out of the bigs, I was always sort of probably one of the best. But at Carlton, we did a lot of, they call shuttle tests and same sort of thing, sort of like a beep test, but it's it's run a bit differently. And we never did it, John, but we did it once at Geelong, and I knew how to do it. You wouldn't call it cheating, but I knew that there was a there was an strategy, art,
0: yep. a strategy yep. to doing it well. Mm.
1: I came second. I knew it hurt. I knew where it hurt. I knew how not to hurt because I'd done it so many times before. And so that's sort of with you as you get older, preseason gets easier, only because you know where to put your energy at what times, in what way. And that's anything in life. more you do things, yep. the more you put yourself through that stress, the easier things go. And so mm. anyone that's stressful about something, just do it over and over again. Mm. I'm about to hold a snake in for, in three weeks and I'm petrified of it, so I'm prepping my brain <laughs> for the next three weeks to hold this snake. But then I'm just I'm, if I do it, I'm just going to try and make myself do it more and more for exactly that reason because yep. I've learned through yep. what I've done is the more you do those stressful situations, the better you'll get at it.
0: Yep, yep. When you said you're holding a snake, I thought you said steak. And I was like, what are you scared of holding a steak for? Are you a vegan, vegetarian?
1: Well, <laughs> um, if, if I was, I might be, but no, a snake. A yeah, hissing, snake makes snake.
0: sense. <laughs> no, I love those stories, honestly, and it brings back so many good memories and highlights so many of those character-building traits, I guess, you get. And
1: that's the thing. They are the best memories. Some of the hardest things you do end up being the best memories, but they are the worst. And the things you remember, like, I wish I didn't remember the JD moment where he made us do all these extra things when we came in late. But I remember it because now I look back and it was sort of funny because it was just completely wrong that he made us do it, but he still did.
0: Yeah. And they're teaching people not to become overwhelmed, not to turn on each other as well as teams. You didn't want the rest of the team to turn on Brownie or anything like that, of course. Teaching people to stand up when they need to or pick up the slack, like you said with Dan Merritt. I love that sort of quality as well. But then, just even more broadly speaking, that you know, when times are tough, you think you can't go any longer, you can't take any more, you can go longer, you can take more. Absolutely. And just don't tell yourself, don't let, allow yourself to think you can't go longer, you can't do more. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other, and eventually you'll get there. You might recover a little bit, then you, you go into a bit of a jog and then you might recover a bit more. You go on to of a run and eventually you might get back to sprinting one day. I think all these things in work now in the same sort of way. I get overwhelmed with work sometimes with emails or delivering for national clients or whatever and there's a lot of organizing to do and admittedly I'm not the best on admin from time to time. And I just think, oh, man, what have I signed up for here? <laughs> I cannot do this. I'm just an old front row. I'm an old sports person. <laughs> and I try to give myself these excuses I'll get out of get-out-of-jail-free cards. And then I go, no, 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 hang on, hang on. One foot in front of the other. Let's just chip away at it. And over time, you'll get there. The tide will change. you get some momentum. And you'll get back to enjoying it again. And we, we learned that from preseason.
1: Yeah, we did. And it's so easy and you love podcasts because people tell you what you want to hear. And it's so easy for us to talk about it here and say it. But one of the best analogies that I work with is just start. Like it's when mm. people say, just just go to the gym. Whatever you do yep. there is whatever you do there, but just go. And I think in terms of like when you hear all these podcasts, or, and it's podcasts these days, because I do it, I listen to it as well. When you hear them all, it's so easy to go, oh, yeah, that that makes sense. Oh, that's just words, like whatever. Mm. It always comes back to what works for you because everyone is different and everything. So, what the whole just get there, just start always works for me. So, I've just got this new bike at home. I'm finally starting to do some fitness stuff because I've done stuff all fitness in the last 12 (laughs) months. But now, I've just gone and it's usually about 45 to 60 minutes on the bike. I didn't want to do it this morning. and I was just like, just start. And I didn't do the whole session. I did 45 minutes of it. And that's yep. back to my non-perfectionism. I'm actually, I'm actually okay with that now and I never yep. used to be. But it's just get started. Yep. Like, whatever it is, not everything's gonna work for you, not everything you hear from people is gonna work. Find mm. what works for you because yep. that's the key. And it's not gonna be the same as that person you admire or the person that told you or your best mate or your mum or your dad. Like it's you just need to work what works for you, and listening to podcasts is all well and good. But until you work the individual out, that's the hardest bit. Mm,
0: absolutely. And what works for you might change over time as well. If you're a, a young single bloke or lady and you haven't got any kids, of course, then going to your hit class every morning for 45 minutes to start your day might be achievable, viable, affordable. And then you get married, then you have kids, and you have to sort of negotiate. No <laughs> chance. Don't get married, don't have kids. No, maybe you no, do. No, and... not bad. You've got no chance, you've got no time. Oh, no yes, chance. yes, you yes.
1: Don't, you're, not, you're not going to that hit class, I can yep. guarantee you that.
0: Yep. You can throw those plans out the window, or as well, you can negotiate. And yeah, you might not have that time you want, you might not get to the class in the morning, but you might be going to the Arvo. Maybe you can't afford a hit class, so you go to the gym, $16 a week. Or you go to the park and go for a run and do some burpees, so... Compromising from best case scenarios I think is um, is a good strategy as well. So, if a young player is wanting to play AFL, or maybe just professional sport in general, or maybe just setting some goals, figuring out their life, what would be some sort of advice? You mentioned you had some learning processes that took you quite some time and you wish you learned them at a younger age. I know myself, back into my career we got taught a lot of skills around healthy stress regulation strategies and that let us live a happier life, but also perform at a higher capacity too. I wish I had those skills as a young person. Some of the things we talked about before, about being coachable is important. Absolutely. I like talking to young people about that. Were well, there certain things that you think are you know really vital for a career or just some of your learnings uh, that you wish you had at a young age and you'd like to pass on to a young person?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I find this question hard to answer because I, it is just words, and it's everyone sort of says a lot of the same stuff. I mm. think trying to – Piggyback on what we've spoken about a little bit is, as a young person, yes, you've definitely got to follow who you admire. So if you walk into the Geelong Footy Club now, right now, go watch Tom Hawkins, go watch Mark Blitzarbs, go watch Paddy yep. Dangerfield. And trust me, they're all very different the way I do things. Go watch Tom mm. Stewart. They're all very, very different. So go and watch all them, mimic, steal their ideas, talk to them. But it sort of comes back, and this is so hard for an 18 to 22-year-old to work out, but what works out of that for you? Because Paddy Dangerfield and Tom Stewart, very different the way they do things. You're not either one of them, so take what you can and try to work out what it is out of what they do, if they're your two, that works for you. Talk to people about it. Get their opinions on you about what you're doing. Get all those opinions, but never take an opinion as gospel. Take the opinion as something that you can pull in, Take three to five people's opinions, pull in, work it all out, roll with one. Oh, it feels like it's working, it feels good. I feel happy about doing it. Do that. Don't just do mm. it because you think that's what Paddy Dangerfield does. Because, yep. yeah, that might work, but it might not either. And then that just might have a an adverse effect on you. So I feel like that's the best way I've ever explained what I'm trying to say. But, Nailed it. Yeah, I'm trying to. I, I don't know. I just, a lot of people say, oh, I'll just go find someone and, and copy them. I, I, it's just it doesn't work that way. You've got to find what works for you. And I know I'm talking about young young players and it's, it's much harder because you're not as sort of switched on. I wasn't. I wasn't switched on until, what did I say, 12 years, so until I was 30. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. Find three to five people you trust. Use them as your guidance in terms of talking to them about opinions on what you are doing or what you can do better. Steal ideas, mimic people, copy people but work out the things that are actually giving you happiness to go and do. And if they're not, find a different way of doing it and see if that gives you happiness because the happiness and enjoying it is going to be the bit that gets you to that next level you want to be, not just doing 100 kicks of the footy because you feel like you have to do it. Maybe do 25, Mm. but you have to hit 25 in a circle. I don't know. Bad example, but try to put it as best as I can.
0: So having a real open mindset to see how other people do things, potentially they're doing it different to... Things you've ever seen before in your life, not necessarily just following them single mindly, single trackly, and doing just whatever they do because they're good, but you know taking consideration some of their high performing methods and strategies. I always like to balance opinions and bits of information, usually through podcasts. Actually, I love love a podcast where, for example, if we're thinking about nutrition, and I might be interested in that this week or month. I'll listen to these podcasts that profess the carnivore diet, only eating meat is the best diet in the world. But I'll make sure I also listen to this vegan athlete podcast as well, where they don't eat a shred of meat or anything like that at all. And the fascinating thing is both podcasts or podcasters will have compelling information that each of their lifestyles is the best lifestyle. <laughs> and so if you only ever fueled my mood or information, my knowledge with one of those channels, then that's probably how i think, right? And so I try and fuel my information, my mood, my knowledge with both channels and then, you know, weigh up what I think made the most sense or fits into my lifestyles, my values, like you're saying. So
1: Spot on. And that's I you said I heard you I don't know if you know I was on, but you said you just had a black coffee this morning, a G fast.
0: Yes. I love it, yeah, from time to time for, well, one, sometimes weight management. If I get a bit piggish and think I'm still training 40 hours a week, I try and balance it out. But also, I find just like good mental clarity from fasting from time to time as well.
1: So that's what I'd changed in 2018 To I fasted. I pretty much fast, I'd say, 90% of the time. So I'm yep. 16, 8, and the best thing I ever did in terms of the way weight management, skin folds, if you want to go on skin folds, mental clarity, I was finding between 2 and 4 p.m., I'd go real downhill and I just wasn't eating as well as what I thought I was. And I thought I needed a bunch of things, but now I can eat whatever I want. Weight's fine. I feel better. Mental clarity and everything is better, but it's not for everyone. I've got mates that I've told to do it who have tried and said, no chance. I used to do pre-season training sessions with no food. Now, there was a club that I was at that literally used to ask us if we were eating breakfast. Um, so I wouldn't have been able to do it. I played games, night games, fasting at times as well so it just worked for me when i found that in 2018 when i was injured because that's when i was trying all new things because i could because i had the time to but yeah it's a great way to be confirmation bias is one of the worst things in the world just find your little bubble stick in the bubble and anything that feeds that bubble just give me that need more information
0: nice nice i think podcast is a good way to get that speaking of which thank you so much for sharing your information on this podcast bit of your story your journey playing into the AFL and for the different clubs. That was really interesting to hear about some of those clubs, particularly for me, not you know, being super knowledgeable on AFL. Some of those setbacks, your teams and, and you had as an individual along the way and how you recovered from those, your mindset was was very good. Uh, it was good to talk about pre-season training, call us weirdo sickos, but uh, we'd love to get into that grind and the character building moments from that. So yeah, really appreciate your insight, mate. Good luck with all of the next steps in, in your career and your injuries and And I hope you're going to get back into golf soon.
1: Same. Thank you for having me too, because I know it was, uh, was a bit of a pain to get. So I appreciate your patience. Thanks, Dave.
0: Not at all. Absolute pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Lockie. See you, mate. Thank you. Thank you very much to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Prime Effect podcast. This episode was brought to you by the Wealth Depot, experts in financial planning. This episode was also brought to you by SW Brokerage. If you're looking for a new home loan, car loan, commercial loan, then SW Brokerage are the people to talk to. And lastly, this episode is also brought to you by Fuel Your Life, the nutrition and dietetics specialists helping humans fuel their lives. See you next time.